Oh, so you guys, I, I know I promised you last week I'm going to do a sermon on apocalypse, which maybe sounds a little bit thick, and it is going to be a little denser this week, um, but I hope it'll be uh, helpful. And I'm going to start us out with just a little bit of a confession. This will tell you like kind of how obnoxious I was as a teenager. So when I was in high school, I was the, the president of the FCA. So I don't know if you know what that is, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Not that I was like a major athlete or anything like that, but I was the president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. It's this big public high school in Indianapolis. And to my utter embarrassment as an adult, I spent my entire junior year of high school leading that group through like an intensive Bible study on the book of Revelation, uh, my interpretation of it, right? And what I was calling the end times, which I thought were imminent. So... If you guys ever heard of like the Left Behind series, um, I actually never read that because it came out just a little bit later than me, but I would say my Bible study was very much like in that vein of trying to tie world events and leaders to like symbols in the Bible and make predictions about the end of the world and things like that. So I know we all here come from a variety of backgrounds and that some of you guys did not grow up in this kind of strange stream of American Christianity, but I also know that some of you did or Maybe you have family who are embroiled in it. And so I thought it might be helpful for us to address this idea of apocalypse in our little sermon series that we've been doing on the kingdom of God. And I thought it might be helpful for a couple of reasons. One, I thought if you have had any of that kind of teaching in your background, and I know some of you have because a few of you have even reached out in the last month, I thought it might just be helpful to have a little bit of a different perspective taught since I think there's a lot of apocalypse talk that is going on in the cultural ether. Um, and then also the idea of apocalypse is most often used in the Bible or found in the Bible in relation to like the fall of empires or to really significant historical shifts. And so I thought it might help us have a little framing for this moment that we're in. So I want to start by saying that the Bible actually says very little about future events. You know, the, the Jewish tradition doesn't focus on things like the end of the world or even on that much not even on what happens like after we die. And so Jesus being a Jewish teacher was also not that interested in making predictions about things that would take place like thousands of years after he lived. And so when Jesus did speak about future events, those events were usually in the very near future. And they usually sprung from what I would say is his correct evaluation of the political climate that he was in and what that political climate would lead to if things didn't change. And the place where we see this most clearly is in Matthew 24. So I'm going to see if I can get this whole bit of scripture into the, uh, oh, I could, good, into the chat. I might have to scroll up a little. So I'm going to read from Matthew 24, 1 to 9. This says, Jesus left the temple, and he was, this is in Jerusalem, and he was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, Jesus asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on one another. Every one will be thrown down. And then as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. So Jerusalem, you've got the temple in the city, and then if you walk uh, 25 minutes or so to the east, you're on top of the Mount of Olives, and you can actually look down over the city. right? So it's like they've gone from the temple, and they've walked up onto this hill. And they're sitting up there, and the disciples came to him more privately, and they said, tell us, when is this going to happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many are going to come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there'll be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these things are the beginning of birth pains. So that sounds a little terrifying. It sounds a little bit like the 20th century, a little bit, a lot of war, but it's, it's pretty well accepted in every branch of Christianity. And I'll say that every branch of Christianity, except this very specific part of evangelical American Christianity, it's pretty accepted here that Jesus was talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which would happen in like 30 years, so like in the near future. So he's literally looking at the city, sitting on top of this hill, talking with his disciples. And I think what was happening was he could tell from the political climate and where things were heading that Rome was going to come down hard on that city. Right? He's like, it's not going to go well for you or for us if things keep going like this. And so Jesus talks about this coming hard time in terms of wars and famines and earthquakes. And in doing that, he's using imagery that his followers would have been familiar with to describe this like coming turmoil. Right? So throughout Matthew 24, Jesus employs what we call apocalyptic language. I'll copy and put that into the, the chat. Oh. It did not work. There we go. Apocalyptic language. Oh, it did work. So you got it double. So he's trying to help his followers like better see the truth of what was happening in their time, like how significant it was. Right. So for those of you who might not come from a Christian background, or maybe you come from a part that puts a little less emphasis on texts that use this sort of language. Um, let me just start by saying that like apocalyptic literature is a genre that's all of its own. So like poetry is a genre, or like romance is a genre. Apocalyptic literature is a genre that helps humans talk about like big cataclysmic world-altering events. And there are lots of apocalyptic books in both the Jewish and the early Christian tradition that we don't have in the Bible, in addition to the ones that are, like the book of Revelation. And so like any genre, there are accepted words and phrases and images that are used um, that are like specific to that genre that authors work with because there's a shared meaning or a common understanding of what they mean. So to let you know like kind of how nerdy I am, for those of you guys who are sci-fi fans, right, we know what a cyborg is. If I say a cyborg, if you read sci-fi, you know it's something that's part human and part mechanical. And every sci-fi writer who uses such creatures could come up with like a completely different name for them, but they don't because there's like already a name that we sort of know and understand. Just like, you know what a wizard is, right? And we kind of accept certain characteristics about wizards that are just kind of part of the cultural understanding. We don't have to explain it. Well, apocalyptic literature has its own words and images that were like understood by the people who are familiar with that style. And it would take way too long to go into all of that imagery this morning. But suffice to say that things like the moon turning to blood and the sun being blacked out and talk of earthquakes and famine and war are ways that like apocalyptic literature talks about big changes and big feelings. 
right? It's like, it feels like the moon is turning to blood and it feels like the sun is being blacked out and it feels like this major earthquake is shaking the entire world under our feet. It feels like the heavens are sending all of these scary horsemen of the apocalypse out to destroy us, right? So like in certain historical moments, it feels like the end of the world. And I can see why people are drawing from this imagery right now, right? The sun was like literally blackened out by the wildfire smoke in San Francisco a few weeks ago. And the moon did look blood red because of the fires, right? So it's like, I've got one friend who's out in San Francisco and she's like, I don't actually believe this, but it does feel like, oh my gosh, is this what Jesus was talking about? You know, or, or like, is this the book of Revelation happening? But I find it helpful to remember that almost every generation has wondered at some point if they're living in the end times that are spoken of in these kinds of scriptures. And every generation has tried to apply various imagery to their own current events. And I found it's not really that constructive to do in a literal way because I, I was kind of enmeshed in that growing up and didn't find it that helpful. Like we were pretty convinced that Gorbachev or the Pope were the beast spoken in Revelation and, you know here we are 30 years later. That's not a helpful way actually even to like posture yourself as a Christian toward your fellow Christians who are Catholic, right? What I do think that the apocalyptic literature is helpful for is in like understanding the truths of what it looks like and feels like when the ways of God are clashing with the ways of empire, right? Because that's almost all of the apocalyptic literature is talking about a time when empire has gone bad. And so I think insights into what this looks like and feels like is actually a real gift that the Jewish people have offered to the world, right? Because the Jewish people have had this cohesive culture for thousands of years, and they've also suffered under a number of different empires, right? Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greek, Rome. And because they've had this cohesive culture, there's a really rich literature that explores and even like warns us of what happens when that pursuit of power clashes with a different way of living. And so the word apocalypse just literally means unveiling. I'll copy and, and paste that there. The word is apocalypsis in Greek. It just means like pulling back a curtain. Okay, so the idea is when this text is pulling back a veil, it's letting us or helping us to see like a deeper reality that's not always immediately visible, right? So those texts are supposed to help us like understand the pathologies of empire, um, as well as I would say the beauty of God's vision for humanity. So texts that help us see like this are called apocalyptic texts and events that allow us to see truth more clearly are apocalyptic events. And so how I would like understand the cultural moment that we're in right now is I would say we're living in a time when there's a massive unveiling of injustices that often remain more hidden, right? So things like white supremacy have always infected America, but it's like manifesting more right now. So we'd say it's an unveiling. It's easier to see and to name. And there are even things that are going on right now in our culture that I would call like apocalyptic movies or apocalyptic TV shows that are helping us to see and name that. I would say like anything Jordan Peele is writing or directing right now, if you know him of Key and Peele. So he wrote that horror movie, Get Out. And right now there's, he's got an HBO series called um, 
Lovecraft Country. That's what we're watching. Where he's kind of saying, you want to know what's really scary? Racism. <laughs> you know, and then really showing it to us visually. I would say that's an apocalyptic movie or an apocalyptic television show. And we're also in a time when we can see more easily that we've neglected like our duty to care for the earth, right? That it's part of our spirituality. It's part of our spiritual connection that we have to all living things and sort of our duty to that connection and the consequences of that lack of care and what that looks like in contrast or in clash to the demands of empire, right? The empire demands we make more and more money. So we cut down all the forests, you know, whatever it is, that's in contrast to our, our spiritual duty as people who care for the creation. And so it's that, that clash, we're starting to see that more visible. So even events like the massive wildfires out west, I would say, are part of this unveiling. And it just so happens that part of this unveiling is like literally turning the sun to darkness. Right? So the American empire, we've infused our myths with Christian symbols. And I think this marriage of this white American Christianity with this nationalism and empire is really just wreaking all kinds of havoc in our nation. And so there's this unveiling happening. And I would call it an apocalypse, but I wouldn't call it the apocalypse. Because I don't think that the Bible like points to one apocalypse, right? It's, it's kind of showing us what it looks like. It's an apocalypse. So in the midst of apocalypse, I think the Bible also invites us to hold on to hope. Right, so in scripture, the way apocalypse is used is it's, it's used as like an invitation to transformation. So it's like an invitation to either change our ways and avoid destruction. In, in Christian speak, we might say to repent. Or if destruction has already arrived, it's like an opportunity for us to reevaluate how we move forward after that. So when we see more clearly these fissures in our society, like we're invited to take steps to fix them. And I've actually been reading a pretty wide spectrum of faith leaders in this time that we've been during the pandemic. And I keep hearing this from people across all traditions, faith traditions, that like major societal upsets, like the one we're in with the pandemic, um, that these are an invitation to transformation. Like there's an invitation for us to reimagine a different future that's better than the reality that we've been living. And so that resonates with me because I think that's also what the Christian imagination is telling us, right? That apocalypse can be followed by a great renewal. And we might say, like, it ushers in the presence of God or the kingdom of God. So after the turmoil of apocalypse in the book of Revelation, we see at the end that the heavens actually come down and merge into the earth. And so the picture that we have in the scriptures is that, like, justice and peace are beginning their reign, like, here. So I don't know if some of you grew up like I did. Um, I grew up believing that there would be like a rapture where people would just like fly up into the air and we'd go off into some heavenlies with God and then God would destroy the earth. Uh, but that is something that's completely from the American imagination. That's, that's actually not the orthodox view of what that will look like. And that stems from a passage in the letter to the Thessalonians in the New Testament. So let me copy and paste this. I thought, let's hit the rapture while we're at Apocalypse this morning, right? These are complicated. When you find them, when you're reading scripture, it's a little like, what does that mean? 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17. According to the Lord's word, 
We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. The word is perusia in Greek. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So the word rapture is actually never used in the Bible. The closest is this one place in scripture, and it's this Greek word perusia, which is translated as caught up. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this quote from uh, John Dominic Cross and a Catholic theologian, because I think he helps us understand in context what it means. Perusia, in the, the context of the Roman Empire, it means the arrival at a city of a conquering general, an important official, an imperial emissary, or above all, the emperor himself. So the proper response, especially under the Pax Romana, would have been for the leading citizens to go outside their open city gates, make the appropriate welcome, and then escort the arriving dignitary back inside with them. Right, so the writer of this letter to the Thessalonians is saying, it's gonna be like that when the presence of Jesus comes. Right, so just like you guys, just like how the Romans go out to greet the emperor and there's trumpet blasts and you go out and you send your dignitaries and you usher the emperor into the city for a giant banquet and feasting. When the presence of God arrives fully, we'll be ready and we're gonna go out and we're gonna usher God into the city with celebrations. And I think this is what Jesus was alluding to in Matthew when he spoke of like the renewal of all things. And that's about all he said about the far future. He talked about the renewal of all things. And it doesn't have anything to do with people literally like flying away to some distant heaven, but rather with heaven like arriving more fully on earth. Right, so this is why we pray every week, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't really know what the renewal of all things looks like. We don't know what we call heaven looks like. Um, the way that I personally think of heaven is that I imagine it as a place where we experience like the dimensions, all of the dimensions of reality at one time, because we know that there's multiple dimensions that we don't experience in our bodies and maybe even like the collapse of time. So I see this most, like I've, I've sat with a number of dying people in my, my job and in my family. And when people are in the process of dying, they so often like see and hear and even talk to people who have gone before them. And it's so common that it's one of the things that makes me think that there's something after. And I see that as like, like a thin spot where the people who are dying are like transitioning to a place where time is no more. And they are seeing this company of people before them. So like in the Hebrew scriptures, dying is often talked as like being gathered to your people. I'll put a couple of, of those scriptures in. Like in Genesis 25, when Isaac was passing away, said he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. Or in Numbers, oh no, Genesis 49 is the next one. When Jacob 
passed away. When Jacob finished giving instructions to his son, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Numbers. I don't need to read all of these to you, and there's actually a lot more, but just so you see over and over, the idea is that you're like gathered to your fathers or you're gathered to your people. And I think the idea is that there's like this great company of humans that are waiting for like the combining of the ages. And Paul calls those the communion of the saints. And that's why I think we, in the Christian imagination, we think like those people might even be like accessible to us through dreams or through like communing through saints and things like that. And this is just my best guess, right, at what this coming like renewal of all things looks like. But I don't think it actually seems to be that important for us to worry about because Jesus focused his followers' attentions mostly on the here and the now, right? He tells them, love your neighbors. He teaches them about the kingdom of God. He says what to do in practical ways. Care for the poor. Break bread with people who are despised by the religious elites, including people like me who are gay, right? Make community with them. Tend to the sick. Be generous with what you have. Hunger and thirst for justice. If somebody doesn't have a coat and you've got two, give them one of them. And so the idea is that when we see enough people do these things, our stubborn hope as Christians is that we, we cling to this idea that that can actually transform the world and that that will usher in this presence of God so that when the presence fully comes, we can go out and meet the presence of Jesus and like, come on in, come in fully. Let's celebrate because we can see clearly that this world needs some transformation. And I think how long our current apocalypse will last is kind of anybody's guess, but there's light that is found in this darkness. And I think the most important thing when people are talking either in your family or I've seen a lot of like Facebook or Twitter discussions about apocalypse. Um, I think just kind of drawing back of like, but there's work to do right here and right now. Right. And there's ways of living that are like counter empire that we're to bear witness to. And that's, that's where we keep our focus or center our attention. So I know that was a little light on like stories. That was a little heavy on, I was trying to do a lot of theology in a very, small way. Um, but apocalypse, it, it's interesting to me, this is all completely not in my notes. I just, I do find it a little bit fascinating because I think we don't have enough of a cultural understanding necessarily for the Hebrew scriptures to see how profound what they're doing is. That when they have some of these monsters, like we did the monsters of the Bible last Advent, if you guys were with us in December, like the monster I didn't get to do that I wanted to do that I didn't get to was the beast in Revelation. Because like we have words for what's going on now, right? We have images. And so like empire gone bad is like a beast. And then we also have imagery that gives us hope in the middle of that. So when we've been in these times that are uncertain, I would say I'm like 90% peace and 10% panic. And the 90% peace is where I'm trying to just sort of live and dwell and hold on to that. Um, so I offer that to you in hopes that, that, in hopes that that's helpful.